What you're about to hear is the first few chapters of a book I've been writing and rewriting since 2001. It's a sci-fi fantasy novel codenamed Blue Sun. I've decided to publish it as a serial podio book. This is the preview of the beta version. When I start putting out the first sections of the beta actual in a few weeks' time, it will be after extensive rewriting. Character names and events could be different, and all of the music you'll hear will have to be replaced with an entirely pod-safe soundtrack. I'll be releasing the beta for free, with a view to actually marketing the finished book at the close. Come straight to the forums and look for Blue Sun in the Gonzo section, and there will be a thread detailing the history of the project that allows the whole DC community to help with the crafting of this from the printed page into something really special. If I get it right, it's going to evoke the scale of a blockbuster movie, but with the time and attention to characterization of a long-running TV show, and hopefully not compromised, watered-down, dumbed-down, or just plain cancelled in the manner it takes to bring this sort of story to a mainstream audience. This is for geeks who've watched or read a million sci-fis already. God bless every single one of you. Two minutes to third period geography and the darkened green hallway was a mass of female students, all whispering to one another and comparing last-minute notes for the inevitable test. To one side stood the only boy. Sire tapped Stacia's shoulder and inclined his head. Felona Price was stalking up the corridor towards them, chilling purpose in her eyes. She was flanked by three companions and all four girls were caught somewhere between swaggering and trembling. Felona stopped directly in front of Stacia and very deliberately lifted the right flap of her blazer. At her belt was a dagger, eleven inches long and elegant, the handle wrapped in fine red leather. Stacia nodded and turned to face her. Sai gripped her arm and the girls around them gasped and whispered. Stacia pulled free and Sai ignored the snorts of derision from the crowd. The door behind them opened and Miss Cottle emerged with a clipboard. Miss Cottle, Felona's about to stab Stacia. The teacher looked from one girl to the other and caught sight of the blade. She turned to the rest of the group. Ladies, geography's cancelled this morning. Would you all come with me, please? Good. Are we going to... Quiet, please. We're going out to the red circle. If you ladies are going to do this, it will be done in the proper place. Kerrida and Firebrand sat in an uncomfortable leather chair, feeling like a disobedient child, counting the seconds until she could be let out of the principal's office. Miss Chase entered and sat opposite, her fingers steepled together. Ms. Firebrand, how much do you know about what happened today? Kerrida studied her for a moment. Miss Chase had a mouth like a paper cut. She wore the flowing green robes of college office and an expression of well-contained anger. Sire told me that he tried to save the life of his friend, and another girl got hurt in the process. That's correct. Although Sire has a knack for leaving out certain troubling elements of the truth. 
My boy was stabbed today. If he's being diplomatic, then it's more than this incident deserves. Let us be entirely honest with one another. When we took Sire in, it was agreed that he would respect all aspects of our culture and not attempt to inflict any of his patriarchal values upon our girls. And he hasn't! We both understand and respect Hippolitan law and your history and customs. I've always taught my son to absorb the cultures he's a guest of. Then answer me this, Ms. Firebrand. Your son has been challenged to no less than three duels in his eight months here, and he has conceded defeat without combat on all three. Would you say that showed respect for our way of life? No. I would say that it shows respect for life. I did not raise my son to hit girls, but he will defend himself and others. The duel is the very fabric of our society. Without it, war is inevitable. If our differences are solved with a simple two-person blood pact, then we can avoid the complications of revenge or reprisal. Your son has driven three of our girls to seek that blood pact and has denied all of them the dignity of a justifiable kill or honourable death. This we have overlooked to date because of his gender, his lack of adjustment to our society, and the antiquated notions of chivalry he's been taught in the past. But today he not only stood between two young ladies engaged in a blood pact, but has injured and possibly killed one of them in the process in full contravention of our laws. He was protecting Stacia Hornbeam. If he hadn't stood between them, she'd probably be dead by now. I was not there to see the incident. But I have seen the wound to Felona's head. He did not use a ceremonial blade, but instead relied upon brute strength. The force that your son exerted when throwing her back against the wall was beyond savagery. I have four students who will attest to it. Once again, my son does not attack people, no matter how repugnant you may find that ideal. But Felona came at them with a knife, and he defended his friend and himself. I'm not entirely sure what you would have expected any person to do when someone they love is in mortal danger. If you are not sure by now, Miss Firebrand, I am certain you will never understand the complexities of our nation. I would strongly advise you to take your boy somewhere his behaviour will not pose a threat to our people. Keridwen stared at her, biting back a torrent of abuse. Then on seeing the look of triumph in Miss Chase's eyes, she decided it was best if somebody for once told this woman exactly what they thought of her. Sire sat outside the medical office, jiggling his right knee, drinking from a cup of water and scowling. Stacia sat beside him in a state of considerable distress. The college doctrine of rules and etiquette was in her hands. So what exactly do I have to do to get out of this? I've checked all the cross-references. You have to kill her. Or? Or she kills you. So you're not part of this equation anymore? Not unless I step in and break up your duel. Wait, what if you break up Felona and I, 
and challenge me, and then during our duel you can concede defeat. Surely that's allowed. Then I can spare your life and we can end this stupid blood pact. That's no good either. You'd have to kill me to finish it. And don't say it's stupid. But it is stupid! Stacia, look at me. It's just the tradition you were raised with. That doesn't make it any more true or sensible or wise than anybody else's stupid customs. Look, I've been here long enough. I understand the rules, I understand your laws, I understand the consequences. But if I just stood by and let that happen, I, I don't know what kind of person I'd be. While he was saying this, Stacia was watching him intently. A thrill shot through Sire's body. She had never looked at him that way before. Then he saw his mother in the doorway and glanced down again. There you go, it's okay. Sire noticed the familiar hallmarks of concern and worry across her brow and nodded emphatically. Yeah, Mum, it's like I said, it hardly went in. Can I check it again? The boy sighed and pulled back his blazer and lifted his shirt. There was a bandage over the left side of his stomach. The area was very sore and he had lost a lot of blood. Are you okay to walk? Yeah. Then let's walk. He stood, wincing a little, and touched Stacia on the shoulder. He risked looking at her directly, and she smiled. I'll see you tomorrow. No. You won't. Am I expelled? His heart dropped like a stone, and his side suddenly throbbed in pain. Stacia leapt up. This is bullshit! I agree. That's why I'm pulling you out of this school. We're moving back to Nubia. Sire stared at her wordlessly and nodded. He could not look at Stacia anymore. She had begun to cry. Caridwin nudged Sire towards her and he turned and awkwardly wrapped his arms around her shaking form. She's right. I do have to go. Listen, promise me you'll stay the hell away from Felona. And that if she comes at you again, do not hesitate. Of all the times he had had to leave a life behind, this was the hardest occasion for Sire. As he walked with his mother across to her car, he glanced around, paranoia sketching the form of avenging schoolgirls behind every tree. They sped off, and as he watched the college recede into the distance, he turned to Caridwin. Mum. I'm so sorry. It's not what I was going to say. Okay. I want to talk about the fight. When Felona stabbed me, I felt the blade go into my skin, and then... What? I pushed it out. I can't really explain it any other way. It's the same as when that dog bit me. It's like there was something in my body, pushing her and the knife out of me. And that's when she hit her head. Well, that's good, isn't it? It's scary. Why is it happening to me? Caradwin glanced at him. You know something.
Sunlight played across Sire's eyelids as the images began to fade. He could hear his mother speaking, but the words were fuzzy and indistinct. Seventeen years had passed since that day, but he had replayed this moment in waking and sleep many times since. The dream was slipping away from him with speed now as his mind rose to consciousness. He clung on and tried as hard as possible to grasp some meaning he may be missing before it was gone. Was there some forgotten piece of information he had not considered? A pressure on his chest attracted his attention, and he opened his eyes, staring into two unblinking sea-green orbs. His cat, Bastet, had appeared on top of him. She purred and curled up for a snooze. Sai groaned and whispered the keyword. Off! Bastet flickered and disappeared, rematerializing instantaneously on his breakfast bar. Her image glitching. Her memory drive was on the blink again. Sai lifted the sheets and glanced down at his left side, lightly brushing his finger over the raised bump of scar tissue below his ribcage. The automatic heating kicked in and his chilly little apartment began to warm up. Crossing to where Bastet was washing herself, Sai stroked her warm head as she butted his hand affectionately. His apartment was a metal box about five metres wide and the same deep. It was one of countless other boxes that made up the dilapidated district of Ponos. His living space was a testament to a personal silent rebellion. A book collection was locked in a floor safe. Incriminating posters lay hidden behind drapes, and on the wall in front of his couch bed hung an archaic vid screen, a functional antique for those without cinematic implants. Sire cleared some space on the floor and started to run through his morning workout routine. After skipping, crunches, press-ups and weights, he sat cross-legged attempting meditation. Sire's mind was a maelstrom at the best of times, and whenever he pulled something from it, several other thoughts usually came too. While he was running through a list of the day's clients, he would also be planning in detail what he wanted to eat tonight, playing a random song in his head, remembering obscure movie quotes, observing the body language of others in the room, and jiggling his right knee impatiently. While an ordinary person might find it taxing to get used to thinking of nothing at all, Sire found it downright impossible. Sire breathed out slowly, the notion of calm as unreachable as always, and tried to envision total blackness. He managed to drift peacefully for a full eight seconds before rapid images and thoughts began drifting into his head unbidden. Music began to play above the low whistling wind he usually focused on. The blackness became white with grey spots that swirled and bounced dizzyingly. He had been training himself on and off for over a decade in various martial arts and philosophies, though none of the files he had searched through could teach him effective self-restraint or inner calm. Olympus heavily controlled most of them via the Board of Classification, and he strongly suspected some of the key tenets and principles had been diluted. Sire's dark brown eyes snapped open. It was no use. Inner peace wasn't coming this morning. Sire showered and dressed in his grey overalls, rough leather boots and gloves, folded the bed away and sat eating cereal with Bastet curled up beside him, watching the news with the volume low. As he stroked her side, his skin tingled with static, and he let his mind drift back to the tangled memories. Thinking about his mother brought tension to his stomach. His eyes stung and his lip twitched. He thought about the grey and chilly morning he had woken up to an empty apartment for the first time. The weeks of searching and questions that followed, the months of listlessness after that, and the dull onset of empty years since then. He snapped out of his ruminations, now shockingly late for work. He nuzzled Bastet's head and whispered the deactivation code. She yawned and disappeared as he shuffled down the last of his breakfast, grimacing at the aftertaste of the synthesised milk grabbed his flight goggles and snatched his keys off the table. As he was leaving his apartment, he stalled in the doorway and stared around the place. Had he forgotten something? The room stared back. Whatever it was, he had no time to search now.
Stepping out into the morning light, Sire surveyed the cityscape on his doorstep. The rows of towering bullet-grey apartment blocks stretched on endlessly in all directions. All around him, countless low-end workers were unslotting themselves from their domiciles and stepping onto hover trams bound for another day's hard graft. Sire opened his garage and rolled out the only thing in life other than Bastet that he had allowed himself to become attached to. It was a vintage, fire-red 65 Kitty Hawk. Sire closed the shutter and hopped on, and with a joyful kick, gunned the engine. The battered old workhorse thundered into life and leapt three feet into the air. Still pondering his dream, he adjusted his goggles and sped off down the street, weaving his bike between trams and taxicabs, heading towards the bustling centre of New Athens. The fresh morning air of the Perseus district blew Sire's cobwebs away. The sun soaring overhead caught on the expanse of shimmering silver towers. The sky was a brilliant pink-orange hue with amber clouds dancing in from the horizon. Here and there multicoloured smoke mingled with the clouds, painting vibrant streaks across the heavens. Deciding to take a detour, Sire swept through the busy market square, lifting to his maximum altitude of 12 feet in the air as he swooped above his favourite place, the food quarter. Cooking smells wafted up and set Sire's mouth watering. Spiced chicken and fresh tortillas, saffron rice and blackcurrant ale, marinara sauce and pecan nuts, flaming chilies, roasting beef and sesame oil. All the flavours and textures of the mass of interspersed cultures inhabiting the city combined into one glorious odyssey for the taste buds. It was one of the things Sire loved the most about these troubled people, the way they came together to cook. He was making good time, if he took just a few more shortcuts, he might not be quite so late for work. Turning away from the wide street, Sire aimed his bike towards a narrow alley, pulling his elbows in and inhaling a waft of jasmine, cinnamon rolls and hickory-smoked gammon. He jammed down on the accelerator and grinned.
Josiah's first port of call was Hermes Head Office. If he were to describe the architecture, interior decoration, and company ethos in one term, it would have been cost-efficient. He alighted at one of the parking docks and hopped to the ground. As he straightened up, a hand landed on his shoulder. He sighed heavily, but did not turn around. A tall, angular young man was standing immediately behind him, with greased and back-combed blonde hair. Steiner was a senior member of Sire's department and had modelled himself on the classic image of the delivery boy standing proud in the company billboards. He stood with his back arched and his pigeon chest puffed out. Wait, what time you call this? My favourite time of the day. I've been here since six. Made three deliveries already and I haven't even had breakfast. You should skip lunch too. You'll probably make employee of the month again by dinner. Sire made his way into the building and scooted to the nearest elevator as the doors were just closing and crammed in with the eight other occupants. To his dismay, Steiner somehow managed to squeeze in behind him, taking up the remaining three inches of space. Sire felt nothing except weight pressing in on him from all sides. He counted the seconds until the journey would be over and stared politely into space along with everybody else. I hate being in crowded elevators. I always think they're going to break down. The elevator stopped abruptly and the lighting switched from regular to emergency. Sire closed his eyes and uttered a low groan. In moments of extreme frustration, he would find electronics around him becoming disrupted, and it was happening more and more frequently. Unless he calmed himself down, this elevator was going nowhere. How weird is that? Sire ignored him as best he could and tried to disregard the steel walls and ceiling pressing in around him. He breathed deeply and counted to five and tried to push the panic spreading out through his body down through the floor. He could cope better if he were alone, but the people around him, especially Steiner, made his head buzz and intensified his growing claustrophobia until he was ready to scream. Don't worry, I'll call the engineers. Steiner pressed his thumb to activate his interphone. I know these guys, they'll get us out of here in five minutes. Hello, Millsy? Ah, this is Gobbler. Well, is Millsy there? No, I don't think so, he's just somewhere else. Oh, okay, do you know when he'll be back? I don't know when he's coming back. Nope. I just got to get some chips. I'll call back in a while. Steiner ended the call and stood looking a little embarrassed. There was a long pause and several people in the elevator stared at him expectantly. Steiner shrugged. He went to get some chips. Even later than usual and with shaking legs, Sire finally walked through the doors of his department, Steiner still in tow. He stopped by the desk of a girl named Eleanor. She looked up from her vid screen and drummed her fingers on the table in a lively manner, smiling all the while. You look like hell. Thank you, I try my best. What happened? I've told him he won't pass uniform inspection looking like that. Broken elevator, nothing major. You were stuck in that? I'm fine too. I suppose you can give me my first job now so he can tell me off for being late later. Why, have you got somewhere else you'd rather be? Beside them, standing level with Sire's armpit, stood John Bezel. Two tiny piggy eyes glowered up at Sire over horned-rimmed spectacles. I can't believe you. You're what, 28? I'm 30. So why have I got to act like your teacher? Can't you just get here on time? I'm sorry, John. The lift broke down. Always with the excuses. There's always a reason, isn't there? Yes. See me later, Firebrand. Report. Penultimate warning. Bezel poked Sire's shoulder with a finger reminiscent of an undercooked cocktail sausage. Clearly what this man wanted was abject humility and a solemn promise never to be late for anything again, ever. If it helps, I live close to him. I can pick him up when I come to work early. I've got a sidecar. Good idea. Firebrand, if you're late two more times, it's dismissal. And I don't think someone with your limited options can afford to be out of work for too long. Do you? Sire remained totally calm and shook his head, trying not to let the fact that he was burning with indignant rage show on his face. Oh, and by the way, Lewis dropped tonight's shift, so you're on for a double. As he stalked back to his sweltering office to lie in wait for any other late arrivals and sweat profusely, the little man turned one final time and regarded Sire. 
cut your bloody hair and have a shave by tomorrow morning, too. Never mind. Yeah, think of the money. Sire thought of the paltry sum he would get in exchange for his evening. It was true he needed it, but the job was becoming so spirit-crushing that it was difficult to muster any energy or enthusiasm for his home studies. For the third time in as many weeks, he fleetingly considered quitting on the spot. He could leave the job, leave his apartment, journey outside the city, and into the dangerous wilds. He pushed the thought away as he had a thousand times before. Outside the safety of the walls, he would almost certainly fall to harm, and alone, out in the great unexplored, he would die. Outside meant predators, disease, exposure, cannibals, or worse. He had a duty, and that was to remain alive. Safety and obscurity, and never mind what he wanted for himself. He looked back at Eleanor and fought for control over his jangled nerves. She was a good friend and sweet-natured and funny. Probably the other reason he hadn't quit Hermes many times already. Hey, me and some friends are going to Dionysus tonight. Do you want to come along after you finish up? He recalled the last time he had gone to that nightclub after giving in to Steiner's bullish entreaties. A restless, sweaty darkness enfolding him and strangling his senses. People crammed in like canned fish, crushing him. A relentless pounding as the bass line throbbed through the floor, jarring his entire body and escaping into the air, hung with evaporating sweat and flatulence. He couldn't see, he couldn't hear, and he couldn't breathe. Speech was limited to senseless shouting, and he found himself trapped between gigantic, vibrating speakers, holding a lukewarm orange juice, avoiding the bodies pushing past him and wishing more than anything he could be elsewhere. The world closed in, iris-like, reducing him to a pinprick of light. The music passed into silence, and he was utterly alone, surrounded by people who didn't care if he existed. It was, in short, not his scene. He snapped back to reality as Eleanor prodded him with her pen. Hey, I'd really like you to be there. Uh, I might. A fist dug into his ribs. Steiner was standing about a foot too close yet again. I've been trying for ages to get him to come out clubbing. Ask him again. Come out with us tonight. Please. Come on, mate. You need a drink or two to loosen you up. I really don't like Dionysus. I take that as a challenge. Take it how you like. I'm still not coming. Eleanor studied his face. This was crazy. He was punishing himself like he always did, retreating from intimacy like a dog at bath time. Could he get close to her without telling her everything? And if she knew everything, how dangerous to him would her continued existence be? So I thought of the emptiness of his life and made his decision. He regained his composure, straightened up and smiled. His tone became businesslike, and he found himself saying, Eleanor, can I get my first delivery? Somewhere inside, Sire punched himself in the head. Sure. Where's it headed? Over to Odysseus. Hey, why don't you like Dionysus? The package that Eleanor had placed in front of Sire suddenly had his full attention. I'm just not that. You really have to get out. We'll get you off your face tonight, mate. I promise. He moved to slap Sire's shoulder, but Sire batted his hand away and tentatively picked up the package. There was something wrong with this box. Sire stared at it intently. What time does it have to be there? Ten o'clock. Sire nodded and began to march out of the office. He was almost at the door when Steiner called after him. You coming tonight or what? No, I can't make this evening. Hey, Eleanor, do you want to go eat CGI Fridays tomorrow night? Okay. Sire turned on his heel with the package under his arm and walked out forever. Sire rocketed through the cityscape towards Odysseus. All around him, giant floating billboards assailed him with images of the products he should be buying. 
Silver cars, designer sunglasses, miniature handbags, cellular phones the size of an actual cell, and the latest upgrades for TempleNet hardware. All the things he didn't want, and even if he did, certainly couldn't afford. He sailed past huge, smiling faces, promising a perfect life if he would only buy the relevant product. Little flocks of ad bugs spattered against his windscreen. Even through the roar of his engines, he heard snatches of funky, mediocre music as they shot past. Sire slapped a bug against his shoulder with a heavy thwack of his gloved hand and accelerated away until the noise ceased. The Odysseus Sector Genewash building sped towards Sire. He brought his bike around and landed close to the entrance, dismounted and strode up the path towards the building. He was halfway to the doors when he froze, glancing down once again at the package. He knew opening any of his deliveries without a very good reason was punishable by immediate dismissal, along with potentially massive fines. But the one clear thought in his head was impossible to ignore. It was a bomb. He looked around sharply. A million windows he could be being watched from. No time to wait for a disposal squad. He was surrounded by glass and metal structures, and there were thousands of lives at risk in the Genewash building. At the far end of the forecourt was a broad, deep water fixture, a freestanding whirlpool that channeled in from two DNA-shaped streams. Sire broke into a run, now terrified of what was in his hands. The expanse of concrete between him and the whirlpool seemed to stretch for miles, and his lungs and legs began to burn as he sprinted towards it, a wave of adrenaline coursing through him as he fought to get the package away from himself and the many souls behind him. Reaching the edge, Sire hurled the box down towards the rushing water, and then made an about-face, retreating several hundred feet and snatching up his phone. As he dialed for the police, he glanced up and around. He was definitely being watched. He waited for the connection and continued backing up in anticipation of the explosion. But none came. Emergency services. A voice on his phone broke the silence. Hi. I think I may have found a bomb. The shockwave threw him off his feet. The first thing he felt was the impact running through the stonework. The world rippled around him. The whirlpool erupted into the sky, and as the wave hit the surrounding buildings, the thousands of blue glass panes shattered. Concrete buckled and cracked, and Sire felt something heavy hit his shoulder, spinning him through the air to land painfully some feet away. His arm burned, he tasted blood, and his ears rang. Far in the distance, muffled as though underwater, he heard sirens and screams. But as his vision blurred, he saw that the Genewash building was undamaged. Sire blacked out.
Ariadne stood at the gateway, watching a sleek airship make its descent onto the Mount Building's rear landing pad. She was slender and alert, with bright, sharp eyes. The gangplank descended, and the director stalked down, meeting her gaze. How was the meeting? Are we good? Did they find answers? Yeah, we're we're good. Anything more I can add to that report? Uh, you can add the word very. Okay, done. Did we get the ten-year contract? Five year. He was being annoying. Was General Herc all right with that? Well, I'm bored already. Fourteen seconds, that's like an all-time record for you. You could make my job so much easier. I'm sorry, that was incredibly rude of me. Have you eaten breakfast yet? Yes. Well, I haven't, aside from chewing my own arm off for the past half hour. Please, would you join me? Shortly, the pair were sat in front of apple slices and a rare steak which Hades was busily attacking. Did you look at the report on the Odysseus incident on your ride over? I did, and you're right. Looks like Loki. We have the suspect in holding, and the surveillance footage is being checked over as we speak. Hmm. Ask them to hold that. I'd like to take a look at and talk to this guy myself. Ariadne immediately pressed her finger to a dot on her cheek. Hold the investigations on the GWO case. Hades would like to handle this one personally. Are you going to eat anything other than fruit? I mean. Those are super apples. I mean, seriously, but the way they prepare these steaks. Yeah. I would kill for one of these steaks. I have killed for one of these steaks. You have a faster metabolism than I do. And you're not even drinking coffee. That's somewhat noteworthy. I'm trying to limit my intake. Everything. Everything that's tasty or fun. Yes, I can see that. You're like a monk this morning. I'm incredibly creeped out. I feel like you're going to start, you know, purifying yourself with a mixture of pepper and water. And lemon juice. And salt. Do they use salt? Are you done? Seriously. Have something that's not good for you. Will that make you happy? Yes, it would make me ecstatic. Chocolate, now. You are exhausting, sir. All the more reason for you to drink more coffee. I'll have a coffee. Good. <clears throat> and a pastry. No pastry. You're the boss. Ten minutes later in the central control room, an agent rebriefed them. All footage and reports from local enforcement state that a 30-year-old courier called in a suspected package he was transporting, which then detonated before a team could get there. The man received minor injuries and is in our custody right now. Nobody else was hurt, although the water feature he threw the package into was obliterated. Oh, God. Can they get a new one in place within a week? I believe one is on order. Good. That's a load off my mind right there. Line up the footage of the moments prior to the blast in as many angles as we have. I want this frame by frame. Sire sat in a tiny, bare cell, icy panic coursing through him. After three decades of extreme caution, constant uprooting and personal sacrifice to stay off the grid, how the hell had he wound up here? Stay calm, he thought to himself. You haven't actually done anything wrong. They'll question you, find out you're innocent, and send you home. Another voice in his head was less positive. They're checking your file right now. They're going to go deep on this one. They'll want to know everything. This is Hyperion, the Olympian Central Intelligence Agency. They don't fuck around. I've nothing to hide. He almost convinced himself this time. They're going to take a blood sample. This thought scared him most of all. He had no comeback. He was finally caught. As a concept, it was almost relaxing. In the briefing room, the Hades paced the floor as the assembled staff watched the explosion footage. Um... He knows he's being watched. Could be a patsy. Coercion. Someone's got his wife or a kid. Negative. File says he's unmarried. No dependents. Girlfriend, then? Ariadne spoke. Okay. So his story is that he had a very bad feeling about the package. He's not looking too worried right now. So either he's in on it, and he knows he's caught, 
or he has nothing to hide and nobody he knows is in danger. Which do you think? Hades narrowed his eyes and stared at the screen. The mystery third option is just that he's a very good actor. Run the explosion again from angle seven. The footage played out yet again. Pause. The screen held. Hades manually activated the controls and ran it back a few frames, then pointed at the frozen picture of Sire being propelled backwards by the blast. He traced the trajectory of a shard of debris from the explosion all the way over to Sire, where it bounced off his arm. At the point of impact, there was a single frame with a halo of blue light around Sire. What's that? Anybody? It's not a shield unit. At least not any that we have registered on file. Nothing like that turned up in the search. Negative, sir. Hades got so close to the screen that the holographic image began to distort. It's coming from him. Uh, blood test now. I want to go talk to this guy in two minutes. He strode from the room as the agents behind him fell into action. Three agents and a medical officer entered Sire's cell and stood beside his table. Agent Selix here is going to take a routine blood sample. Sire's vision swam. He could barely believe this was happening. His mind raced. There were four agents. He may be able to take down two, but he was in the center of the most secure building on the planet. He couldn't get three corridors without somebody shooting him down. He fought for control as the world closed in once again, then weighed up the odds and surrendered. There would be a better time for flight. He had to simply accept that he was about to appear on the metaphorical map and pray that he might have an opportunity for escape. He cursed his decision back at the site of the explosion to not run, to come quietly. Now they had him and he'd betrayed so much and so many already. He felt the familiar gathering of energy along the length of his arm, willing himself to relax and reabsorb the shell. He let the needles penetrate his vein. He would not allow himself to be given away, yet. Within seconds they had his blood and it was being taken away, to who knew where. Then they left him alone and he counted the moments till his life would realign and a now undeniable destiny would slam into him. It only took a few moments. Hades walked into his cell. The director of Hyperion himself was standing not ten feet away. Sire regarded this surreal scene with a sense of detachment. Hades sat before him and propped his head up between his hands, studying Sire's face. He knew who Sire was. What he was clearly here to do was to see if Sire knew. The young man regarded Hades blankly, but politely. It's an honor to meet you. Yeah, I've been looking at your file. You've been all over, haven't you? New Athens, Hippolyta, Nubia, Tokugawa. Then back here again. Yeah, my mother was a doctor. That meant some pretty regular upheaval. But not in the past 15 years. No, she's gone now. Oh, I'm sorry, what was it? Pardon? What did she die of? I don't mean she... I don't mean she died. I mean she left. Never said where. And, hey, you work for Hermes. Five years now. Good job. Um, backbone of the city. Okay, that was something of an exaggeration. Maybe the left capitate bone. People need packages, Mr. Director. Yeah, and you want to be the one delivering them. Did you ever consider that there's more out there? I mean, looking at your education, sporadic though it may have been, you should be pulling in a lot more per year than you are. Why aim so low? It's a living. Of course... Of course. May I ask you a personal question, sire? Go for it. What did your mother tell you to do with your life before she left? She told me to be responsible for myself. At this, Hades tapped his finger at the top of his wrist and pointed it at the camera on the wall, which obligingly deactivated. 
Okay, my time here is really precious, and I'm really, seriously, only fleetingly patient. So I just want to ask you one more question, and consider telling me the absolute truth on this one, because it will make things go so much smoother for the both of us. You will know exactly what I'm talking about when I say it. He leaned in and locked eyes with Sire. Honestly, did you have any plans? Over the next few seconds, Hades studied Sire intently. The almost imperceptible reactions that played across his face, the flicker of his eyes, the shift of his mood, however subtly hidden they were, they spoke to Hades like a public address. Sudden panic, reflection, resentment, defiance. I never intended to be a threat to Olympus. Well, your mother did a great job hiding the pair of you. In all probability, Olympus would have killed you both had you been discovered. The fact that it's taken until now for you to pop onto our radar, well... What you failed to do with your life, no offense, makes me, I'll admit, very curious. He stood up. Sire remained silent. So, I'm not going to kill you. Well, I'll think about it. But at this moment in time, you're alive. So, I will see you later. He tapped his wrist and reactivated the wall camera. Sire was frantically trying to formulate a plan. Hades was wearing a firearm. He had seen it as the man entered. It might be enough if he could get hold of it and take the director hostage and get them both out of here. Then what? He was unprepared, unpracticed, had nowhere safe to go and would swiftly become the most wanted man on the planet. Still, the odds were better than when the four were here earlier. But that had been prior to his true identity coming to light. He cursed his earlier inaction. Also, he had noticed tiny vents around the chamber over the past few minutes. There was a very high chance that if he showed any aggression... They would flood the room, at the very least immobilizing him. Would you please be very helpful and truthful with the psych agents I send in to discuss your background? They're incredibly professional. Hades, be honest. If you'd been in my shoes back at Odysseus, would you have run? <clears throat> if I were in your shoes, I would have been running the country ten years ago. I didn't want to. I'm not sure you're going to understand that. Hades nodded and walked out, leaving Sire in a state of very well-concealed panic. A woman walked along the jungle path, eyes wide with fear, the sounds of wildlife around her rising to a cacophony of warning. The air under the canopy was thick and sticky. She pressed on deeper into the brush. Her red hair hung limp with sweat around her brow, and resting in the crook of her arm was a basket of supplies. She paused a moment to look behind her, hearing a particularly harsh growl some distance away. As she turned back to the path, she found a tall gentleman in her way. With intense eyes, fluid movement, and effortless grace, he moved towards her. You look lost. She nodded and gingerly reached out to take his hand. The dark stranger smiled and lowered himself into a bow, touching his lips gently to her fingers as he did so. I am Paka. Which way are you headed? Surrey Village, east of here. I know it well. Please, allow me to escort you, miss. It did not sound like a request. The woman nodded again and began to follow him. They wove through the jungle, staying on the path. Paka told her stories about growing up here until eventually... He had led her down a vine-laden avenue of low-hanging trees. This is a shortcut. When she began to protest, he took hold of her hand again in reassurance. 
After a while, the trees closed in even further and the sunlight had dimmed until they were enshrouded in shadow. Slowly, Paka turned around, his eyes gleaming in the darkness, as he looked her trembling form up and down. Did nobody tell you about this jungle, sweet one? She did not reply, but gazed into his eyes, transfixed. Let me go. Parker smiled more broadly now. His teeth had begun to grow long and sharp. He shook his head and his neck began to bulge and crack back as dark fur broke out all over his face and his pupils became slits. His mouth opened and he screamed a feline cry of pain and hunger as his entire body began to warp and twist into his other form. His torso elongated and curved and his hands formed into barbed paws. There came a sudden flurry of movement and three flashes and the woman now stood defiant before him. In her hands was a long curved dagger. In a panic and still in the grip of transformation, Paka's head switched around just in time to see his stomach spring open and drop its contents onto the jungle floor. At the same instant, his upper right limb dropped to the ground, and in a final movement of pure astonishment, his head lolled back, revealing a yawning chasm in his neck, now erupting with arterial spray. The woman bolted away from this, shutting her eyes and mouth as the remaining pieces that had been Paka succumbed to gravity. She made her way nimbly by touch and sound towards the nearby river, dived in, swiftly and thoroughly cleansed the blood from her body. Swimming far upstream, she removed her gore-soaked white dress and emerged naked from the water, cleaning her dagger until she was satisfied. She made her way back to the scene of carnage and pulled a second dress from the basket. This one was green. She looked down at the mess that had once been Paka, Protruding from the wound in his stomach was the chewed but quite recognisable form of a young child's hand and forearm. Her lip curled in disgust as she struck the creature's head from its shoulders, and then with care wrapped it in her formerly white dress. Then she dropped it into a second waterproof oilskin bag and stowed the head, retrieving her scabbard and sword belt as she did so. Then she began the walk back to Suri, her posture more upright and a manner unmistakably more confident. As she reached the outskirts of the village, a cry rang out, and everybody stopped what they were doing and looked at her. There was fear in their eyes, she noted as she passed. She held out her arms as she walked to show she had not been bitten, and smiling, she gestured to the bag with Parker's head inside. The children ran to meet her, cheering. She proceeded down the street at a jog, and they ran alongside her, chanting rhythmically. There was laughter in their eyes and relief. Stepping into the hut of the chief Okoyot, Akili, she set the head down at the foot of his table and he asked her to sit. He was immensely old with bright eyes set in a heavily lined face. It is done. They call you Great Warrior Woman. I'm honored. Are you sure you got the right man? 101%. Check the head, but be careful not to touch the blood. If you have a strong stomach, I can take it to his remains. Thank you, the head will be fine. Are you sure he was working alone? I remember Paka well. Arrogant little bastard. He has left none alive so far, and I see no reason why he'd be able to keep any company for long. Our wives and children can walk without fear now. We cannot put a price on that. But here is the amount you asked for. He placed a purse on the table. She checked the contents and nodded. That will cover it. Will you stay with us for a while? Even if no children of Paka emerge from the jungle, there is still much good to be done here. You can afford me. <laughs> Would you consider doing it purely for the benefit of others? Man, did you pick the wrong person to ask that? It is so. All hail Athena, goddess of war. Hey, Jumbo. 
she toasted in reply, tapping his cup with her own. Athena was in the middle of prepping her ship for departure when the calm went off. Metis, speak. Nice to talk with you too. That's how I'm answering all my calls now. It's rude. Fine. Mom, how are you? I'm doing well. Got a juicy new mark for you if you say please. Please? It's a high stakes. Smash and grab. Local enforcement? Bigger. Military? Hyperion. I thought that'd get your interest. I assume the fee matches the demands of this one. It's pretty sizable. I mean, I'd do this one for free, purely for the challenge. I know you would, honey. But sizable is good. Did you hear about the explosion in New Athens this morning? I'm still on Nubian time. I haven't checked the news since I got here. How long ago was it? About eight hours. It was minor and nobody was hurt, but uh, Hyperion took a key witness in for questioning. The client wants you to bust him out. Not from the Mount building. No, I'm not an idiot. He's being transferred. If you hurry, you can catch him on the way. I'm sending you the key locations now. Okay. Have you slept? I'm fine, Mom. Catch an hour or two on the way? Okay. How did the panthroform job go? I got what I expected. Small potatoes, darling, but they needed help. We're not a charity case. Yes, dear. Keep an eye out for some fat, rich, corrupt businessman who wants someone equally crooked and wealthy oft. I need to redress the balance here. Of course you do. Good luck dealing with Hyperion. Mm. I'll need it. I love you. Mm. Bye. Bye. Athena signed off, settled into the cockpit of her airship and slid her hands around the control sticks, feeling the engine fire beneath her as she rose up, leaving the village far below. She couldn't help noticing a group of kids sitting on the roof of one of the huts, waving and blowing her kisses. Repressing a smile, she turned skywards and set off as the sun set to the west. have been listening to the beta preview of project codename blue sun be here in a few weeks time for the launch of the beta actual and check out the forums at digital cowboys for more information and the opportunity to help shape this story 
I'd like to deeply thank my wife Sharon for providing me with vocal characterization and putting up with all of my shit. My name is Alex Shaw, and I will see you again. Thank you.